For the follower of Jesus Christ, the question of need is a little bit tricky. Because when we ask that question, we should not be asking, what do I need in order to maintain a certain lifestyle? The question we should be asking is, what do we need in order to accomplish what God has called us to? And if we ask that question for long enough, I think that we will find that it's the wrong question. The question is not, what do we need in order to accomplish what God has called us to? The question is, whom do we need? Who do we need in order to accomplish what God has called us to? It may be that you're here this morning and you're facing something that is far more serious than an international move. You may have come in this morning and you know that you are needing something, but you find yourself sitting here now as we open up the word of God. You're saying to yourself, I just don't know what that need is. I know I need something, but I don't know what it is. Or perhaps we've come to a place as a church where there's a particular issue that's in front of us and we seem to be grasping for something. We can't lay a hold of it. It leaves us struggling and wondering, what do we need in order to move forward? Well, regardless of what situation we've come in here with this morning, what stresses or trials we may have brought with us or where we are as a church, the word of God tells us again and again and again that regardless of what we think we need, we need Christ. We need our God. Nothing else takes that place and nothing else will satisfy Because nothing else was designed by God to satisfy us. We ask that question again and again in our life. Whom do we need? The answer thunders back from the word of God. We need Jesus. We need Jesus Christ. In short, the Lord calls us to an extreme satisfaction in Christ. He wants us to embrace Philippians 4. Verses 12 through 13, where where Paul says, I know what it is to live humbly, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. Now, that's extreme language. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, how could Paul say that? How could he say, just as a blanket statement, I can do all things through Christ? He did not say, I can do all things if I'm properly equipped, if I have enough money, if I have the right frame of mind. He didn't say, if I'm gifted enough, I can do all things. He said, I can do all things through Christ. How could Paul say that? I want you to listen to how Paul describes this Jesus that he's talking about in Colossians chapter 1. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Truth is, when we see Jesus, how Paul saw Jesus, our perspective begins to change. We see things differently. We begin to know that we can let things go in this life, that the items and the material possessions that we have are not all important. The way that our peers see us is not all important. When Christ takes the supremacy in our life as he was for Paul, we know what Paul has, what God has called us to. Now, to clarify, what do I mean by this extreme satisfaction in Jesus Christ? It means this. It means that Jesus Christ is my great need and he is my great supply. Jesus Christ is my great need and he is my great supply. Well, in our text today, we see two men approaching Jesus who don't quite seem to have the, the view of Jesus that Paul did, as we just read in Colossians chapter one. They don't quite seem to have it all fit to get have it all pieced together that who is this Jesus that they're approaching? At first glance, when we first look at their words, we say, well, that sounds perfectly fine to me. But in the way that Jesus responds to them, we know that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the way they've approached him. And before we read this text again and we dive in to see what God would have for us in this text, I want us to pray and prepare our hearts to hear what God would have for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we have heard many words. We've spoken many words. We've heard words on the television. We've heard words on the radio. We've heard words from one another. But Father, I pray that as we look into your word, that we might know that these words are different. These words are truth, and they are breathed by your Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would take these words and place them deep within our heart, that we would have a desire to follow after Christ with all that we are. We would know that supreme and extreme satisfaction that comes in knowing him and him alone. We ask all this in the precious and the holy and the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. It reads, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then... A certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. but The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
Well, here in this text, we have two conversations, very real conversations with Jesus. And in his the way he receives what they say and how he replies is the essence of our message this morning. I want to treat this text exactly for what it is. It is a set of conversations between two very real people and our very real Lord, Jesus Christ. I wrestled with an outline for this, but I think we are best served by kind of eavesdropping in on this conversation, allowing ourselves to go there in the moment and hear what these men say to Jesus and allow the depth and the gravity of what Jesus has said back to them to sink in. We have two conversations here. And as he confronts each man's statement, I pray that he'll reveal himself as our holy, satisfying Lord this morning. Let's get a running start into these verses. Chapter 8 captures what happened after the Sermon on the Mount as growing multitudes began to follow after this one that they saw teaching with such authority. There's growing multitudes coming after him. At one point during chapter 8, a leper comes to him and says, Lord, if you are, if you are simply willing, I know that I can be healed. And Jesus says that I am willing to be healed. A centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I know if you will simply speak a word, my servant will be healed at this moment. And so Jesus is willing. He speaks the word and the servant is healed at that moment. Jesus enters into a household to find Peter's mother-in-law. They are sick with fever. Jesus touches her hand and she's well enough in that moment to arise and serve him just then. Jesus, in this chapter, chapter 8, is healing left and right. He's casting out demons. He's rebuking spirits. He has just hordes of people gathering around him. And he sees the multitudes begin to grow. And then verse 18, we have a bit of a shift. Verse 18 comes as a bit of a shock in chapter 8. As Jesus is with the people, he's healing people. He's doing the things that he asks, that they ask. And then it says that Jesus sees a great multitude Around him, and he gives the command to depart. And I read that. The first question must have been on the hearts of the multitude and maybe perhaps Jesus' disciples as well. What? Is this the same Jesus that was healing and rebuking and taking care of all these people? And now that the multitudes are really growing and coming to him, it says there that he departed. So we ask the question, isn't this supposed to be the Jesus that does everything we ask? Isn't this the Jesus that is at our beck and call and does everything that we wish? We'll see in this text, the answer is no, he is not that Jesus. Before Jesus gets in the boat to cross over, he has these two conversations with these two men. And I want to look at them each in turn. Beginning in verse 19, look, he says, Then a certain scribe came and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, isn't that beautiful language? If you had been there or if I had been there and we saw this man come up to Jesus and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. We would have been touched. We would have said that's a beautiful statement of faith. He's going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Here we have this scribe, this one that is so schooled in the law, that is coming to the one who fulfills the law. And he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You go. We would have been emotional. We would have said, that's beautiful. What a wonderful thing to see. But rather than throwing an arm around him and saying, come on, follow me, like we would expect Jesus to do when someone voices this phrase to him, Jesus responds with words that probably no one saw coming. He said, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he confronts this rash statement head on. The message for us in this text is this, that God is not impressed with grand gestures and bombshells. He's not impressed with eloquence. He's not impressed with what we can say to impress the people that are around us or how impressive it may sound to the ear. God is not impressed with these things. There was something in the man's statement that you and I cannot see. We cannot detect from simply reading that. There was something there that said, I am seeking worldly comfort, worldly gain from this pursuit. Now, we could not see it because we look to the outward appearance. If, you, if in your life you are trying to fool the people that are around you, you most likely will succeed. If I'm trying to fool the people that are around me and deceive them, I most likely will succeed. But the truth is, God does not look to the outward appearance. God looks to the heart. He's not impressed by cute words or a well-turned phrase. He looks to the heart. And as 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. He tells this man, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus' reply is amazing because in that short little response, that short reply to this man's statement, he sums up in a nutshell what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and it is this. True followers of Christ need no incentive but Christ. True followers of Jesus Christ need absolutely no incentive besides Jesus Christ. Why? Because as we said at the beginning, we know that Jesus Christ is our great need and he is our great supply. We have, need no other incentive besides Christ to do what Christ has commanded. I learned to play the saxophone when I was 12 years old. You know what it sounds like when a 12-year-old learns to play the saxophone? It's not a beautiful thing. But from the moment that I started playing the saxophone, I absolutely loved it. I mean, there was just something about it that resonated with me. There was just something about it that just really connected. My parents never had to tell me to practice that thing. In fact, I would do my homework early so I could have more time practicing the saxophone, much to their chagrin, I'm sure. But I would do everything that I could to spend as much time as I could practicing the saxophone. They never had to tell me to practice. They never had to tell me to do what I needed to to get better at it. In fact, they just had to tell me to be quiet at the stroke of midnight many times. But I never had to be told to go and practice. Now, for my brothers, on the other hand, I have two older brothers, and both of them play musical instruments as well. And my parents had to threaten, bribe, beg, pay, threaten bodily harm, whatever was required to get them in that room to practice their musical instrument. Why? Because they had other interests. They had other things that they were enjoying, that they liked to do. Now, if the situation had been reversed and we were talking about golf, my two brothers would be first in line. They would be first out there to want to do that. and Nothing else would have to convince them to go. But as for me, you would have to threaten me with very real bodily harm to go do that. So what's the point? What's the point of that? The point is, when something is your delight, you don't need another incentive. When something is your delight, you love being with that thing or with that person, you don't need another incentive to be following after it. 
It's only when that thing is not our true delight that we have to have other things dangled in front of us to get us to follow after it and to do what we need to do in regard to it. See, churches are good at adding on extras when it comes to following Jesus Christ. We have sights and sounds and lights and drama and entertainment and programs from the cradle all the way to the grave. We have everything you could imagine for people as they come in. They come in. Why should I come here? Well, we've got great programs for your children. We've got entertainment. We've got songs. We've got choirs. We've got all of these things. We're great at adding those extras. And every one of those things are absolutely fine. But from time to time, we need to be confronted with the words of Jesus here. And we need to ask ourselves... That if there came a day when we had no amplification, we had no lights, we had no sound, we had no heating, we had no drama, we had no tax benefits, and we had a lifetime full of governmental oppression and persecution, would Jesus be enough? Would Jesus be enough if there was absolutely no worldly benefit in following him? Is he enough? Are we still a people that can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth is living still, and his kingdom is forever? Are we still that people that can say that? Are we confronted with Jesus' words here when he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Are you willing to follow that, Jesus? Is that the Christ we're following today? Or are we seeking hard after his face? Just for what's in his hand. We want to know him just for what can come to us. Or is there something eminently satisfying in who Jesus Christ is? It makes us want to follow after him, even if that means a cross. Even if that means daily taking up this cross and following after him and being scorned by our neighbors and made fun of in the media and losing benefits that we may have once had in a society that loved Christ. The question is, when everything in this world sets itself against Jesus, is he enough? That's the question Jesus is asking this man. He is removing every other incentive for following him except Jesus Christ himself. Will you follow after me? Jesus says. Foxes have holes and birds have nests. They're comfortable. But the Son of Man... He has nowhere to lay his head. Is that the Jesus we're following this morning? Are we extremely satisfied in Christ and Christ alone? Now, if you want an example of this, of someone who is called to follow Jesus and then immediately does it, well, Matthew gives us an example of this in chapter 9, verse 9, and it's his own experience. It says that as Jesus was walking by, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Evidently for Matthew, Jesus was enough. Question in this first conversation for us is this man says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. With Jesus' reply, we ask ourselves, if Jesus were the only incentive, if he were the only benefit, knowing him and his beauty and his majesty and his glory, Is that enough? If not, then I wonder, are we truly following after this Jesus? Let goods and kindred go. In our second conversation, we move from the question of, is Jesus 
enough. To a different question. Look at verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. It says, Then another of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. We just had a man be gently rebuked by Jesus for this outlandish statement. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go without really knowing what that means. And we have in the next breath, we have another man who comes and says, Lord, I want to follow after you, but let me first go and bury my father. As A.T. Robertson said about these two men, the first was overzealous and the second was overcautious. But at first reading, don't these two men sound perfectly reasonable to you? Doesn't that sound perfectly in line with, and that's a good thing to do. Are we, are we commanded to honor our father and our mother? Doesn't this sound perfectly legitimate? Jesus, I will follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. Here we have this man that his father has either just died or is just about to die. He says, I'm willing to go wherever you go, follow you, but let me first go and take care of this worldly thing. And Jesus replies with words that absolutely, I'm sure, no one saw coming. Here this man makes this perfect, perfectly reasonable question to Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I have said a few blunt things in my life that have, have left rooms just silenced by how blunt and just over the top they were. And my wife cringes at the time, and I usually cringe when I get home. But I've said many, many blunt things that afterwards I'm just thinking, why? Why did I say that? Was, that? was that the best use of your words, Tim? But I have never formed a sentence, I don't think, that would have left people as thunderstruck as these words here to this man. And we know because Jesus did not sin, that these words were perfectly appropriate for, whom he was, for the person he was talking to. And yet when I read them and I put myself in that situation of a man standing before this teacher who has just healed and cast out demons and helped everyone that asked him for help. And he says, I will follow you anywhere you go, but let me first go and bury my father. I think that's reasonable. Jesus says, no, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. His dad had just died. And Jesus says, no, you follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Now, you can almost hear theologians of our day telling Jesus to nuance his message a little bit. Jesus, that's a bit over the top there. Perhaps you need to read some commentaries, write a thesis of approximately 90,000 words, and you'll understand what you're saying better. You're a first century mystic still trapped in a non-Western worldview with mythology and all these things. There's... There's a problem, Jesus. You need to reconsider the words that you're using. You're using words that are not consistent with the salvation narrative or whatever. You need to reconsider what you're saying, Jesus. What you should say is, who am I as just a teacher to tell you what you should do? Well, I will tell you who he is. He's God. This is God speaking here. You can't nuance that. Write as many words as you want to and a thesis on it. Write as many articles as you want to about it. He is God. And His will 
is law. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You see, Jesus never comes second. Even if our heartstrings are playing a captivating symphony, Jesus never comes second. Let these words be uncomfortable to onlookers. Jesus didn't apologize for what he said, neither should we. There are many words that Jesus speaks that are uncomfortable. They are unsettling. They disturb people. And we should not water them down for what they say. We should not feel compelled to nuance them for the media. When we say that there is no other way to salvation to the Father except through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't nuance that. That is the message of the gospel. There are things that Jesus says that cannot be compromised. This is uncompromising language that Jesus is using here. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. As in the first conversation, it seems that there was something in the way this man spoke or something in, the thing, in what he said that left Jesus saying, no, this, this doesn't need to be accepted. This needs to be rebuked. This needs to be confronted. I think of all the words that this man used, the word that was problematic in the ears of Jesus was the word first. Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. We have a sense here that this man does not realize exactly who he's talking to, because the call of God, the call of Christ always comes second I'm sorry, the call of the world always comes second to the call of Christ, to the call of God. He's saying to allow the things of the world to be taken care of by when we feel an imminent call from God. Allow the things of the world that may be pressing in on us. Allow those things to be taken care of by people who are not following hard after God. When we know what God would have us to do, we do it, even if it leaves other things undone. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And he said it when, when he wrote it and said it, he meant it, and he, get, he did it for our protection. See, there's nothing else that can fit in that place, and there's nothing else that is worthy or that will satisfy. Why? Because as we said, Jesus Christ is my great need, and he is my great supply. Now, this man had Jesus Christ in the flesh standing before him saying, come and follow me now. And that was where he said, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, you and I are not likely to be in that same situation. We're not likely to know exactly the time and the moment that Jesus wants us to do something right then and there so that we can say that the only way that we can be good followers of Jesus is to let our unsaved siblings bury our parents. We can't take this text screaming out of its context and say that. But what we can say is that this principle does transfer over to us. But our conflict normally arises between when our personal preferences, our sinful inclinations, they begin to conflict with the standing commands of God. No excuse will excuse putting God second. You ever been talking on the phone for a moment? I do this at work a lot. You're talking on the phone and someone approaches your desk or comes in front of you and asks to speak to you. And you do the thing just one moment. It just, it'll just be a minute. 
We don't do that to God. Regardless of what conversation we're having or what we are involved in, when God, God's call comes to us through the power of his spirit as we read his word, we don't just hold our hand up and say, just a moment, just, just a moment. God never comes second. He comes first. When you know what God would have us to do, do it, even if you leave other things undone. Now, where does this come into play for us this morning as we're coming toward a conclusion? Lord, I know this job does not honor you, but let me first get some money out of it and then I'll quit. Lord, I know that I should forgive my spouse, but let me first punish them for their mistake. Lord, I know that I should repent, but let me first enjoy. Lord, I know I should follow you to the mission field, but let me first wait till my children are older. Lord, I know I should share my faith with that coworker, but let me first make sure they're going to be okay with it. Jesus, I will trust you as my Savior. But let me first make sure that my family will understand. And the list goes on and on and on. These clear commands from God that we have in his word that we say, yes, Lord, I know that you would have me do this. But let me first tend to the cares of this world. No, dear friends. God calls us to an extreme satisfaction in Christ. Our approval Approval from others is not the source of our hope. Our hope does not lie in the demands of this world or our own inclinations or our own desires. Our hope is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And only he will satisfy and only he will be satisfying when he comes first above all things. Jesus Christ comes first. He calls us this morning to turn from our sin and to place our trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. He tells us in his word that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And within that salvation, we find extreme satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray together.